Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. In this study of the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, I'm going to be comparing two articles by Graham John Wheeler, A Microcosm of the Esoteric Revival, The Histories of the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram, and Nick Farrell's article, in defense of the lesser invoking pentagram, along with some other sources. Enjoy. Uh, Abstract for Wheeler's article. This article examines the sources that underlie the best known of all the rituals that have emerged from the modern esoteric revival. The lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, LBRP, which was formulated in the late Victorian period by the creators of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. A close study reveals that the sources of the LBRP are extraordinarily varied, and in some cases extremely old. This eclecticism shows how religious rituals and other quote-unquote invented traditions tend to be assembled from a bricolage of pre-existing materials, part familiar and part mysterious. The Golden Dawn's eclecticism also served the practical function of bridging the gap between the Christian and pagan interests' allegiances within its members. Moreover, the construction of the LBRP provides an example of how older, more fluid traditions of esoteric knowledge came to be codified and standardized by the Golden Dawn in the context of the modern occult revival. And this article is from Correspondences, the Journal of Esotericism. Nick Farrell says, The lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram is considered the most important ritual of the Golden Dawn, in that it has been borrowed by almost every magical order in the last 120 years. Along with its chum, the Kabbalistic cross, it is performed before every ritual. But have we made a mistake? What if it is not the lesser banishing ritual that is the most important, but the invoking one? Interesting stuff. Wheeler says, The lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, LBRP, is the best known of all the rituals that have emerged from the modern occult revival. It was originally developed and popularized by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in the late Victorian period, and it continues to be found in numerous esoteric contexts today. 
not least because popular introductions to ceremonial magic and related subjects continue to teach beginners the LBRP in what is recognizably its golden dawn form. Uh, you can note this is true of uh, Lon Milo Duquette, the magic of Aleister Crowley, Enochian vision magic, Rankin climbing the tree of life, Christopher, Kabbalah magic and the great work of self-transformation, Craig, modern magic, King and Skinner techniques of high magic. Um, leaving out this uh, leaves out some of the most early and important references. Where I first learned it was, I think I was 11, and we had just fled from this OTO house that my mom was living with her boyfriend in this big mansion, and we had fled from there in the middle of the night. And in my books got mixed up a copy of the OAA Adept uh, Lady Maria's uh, copy of The Tree of Life, and it was signed by some OTO adept to her, and she was the real sort of magical leader of the household where this guy Ian was the sort of the kingpin of their little weird thing they had going on. Anyway, he was a pretty abusive guy, which is hence our midnight fleeing from that place. But I ended up with this book, and over the, you know, term between the years of 12, 13, I started looking at it and eventually tried to do the LBRP from that text, and that was my first experience of practicing ritual magic, per se. Wheeler says, in this article, I will undertake a detailed examination of the LBRP. As our point of departure, we may take the memoirs of one of the better-known recruits of the Golden Dawn, the writer Arthur Machen, 1863-1947. Machen wrote scathingly about his involvement with the order, which he called the Twilight Star, one of his criticisms was that it was an essentially modern construct, an incoherent assemblage of materials from disparate traditions. Machen says, quote, Any critical mind with a tinge of occult reading should easily have concluded that here was no ancient order. From ancient rituals, whether orthodox or heterodox, are founded on one mythos and one mythos only. They are grouped about some fact, actual or symbolic. As the ritual of Freemasonry is said to have, it has its center certain events connected with the building of King Solomon's temple, and they keep within their limits. But the twilight star embraced all mythologies and all mysteries of all races and all ages and referred or attributed them to each other and proved that they all came to much the same thing, and that was enough. That was not the ancient frame of mind. It was not even the 1809 frame of mind but it was very much the 1880 and later frame of mind. Well, it's, it always fascinates me hearing um, these 100-year-old critiques of, of the Golden Dawn because just like today, a lot of the things that people, some people don't like are the things that other people do like about it. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, some people are like, oh, well, it's not based on just one thing like masonry, one fact. Of course, we know that masonry is not necessarily based on a fact of the creation of the Solomon's Temple, but that's just the story, you know? I mean, it's very hard. But a hundred years ago, they had much less clear idea of what um, was factual about ancient things. And there, there was much more Golden Age syndrome going on. You know, if things were old, they were better. This is, this is a mentality that constantly flip-flops in human history. We go through periods of the oldest thing being the best thing, and we go through periods of the newest thing being the best thing, and, and thus the pendulum swings. Anyway, that <clears throat> quote from Mackin, Arthur Mackin, is from Things Near and Far. The significance of 1809 is, is that it was the date of the watermark found 
on some leaves of the cipher manuscript on which the order's rituals were based. Machen's words echo Aleister Crowley's complaint in his publication of the rituals of the mixed biscuit type of symbol which is chosen so as to show off superficial knowledge. I love the, of the everyone of, of, of everyone possible we have Crowley complaining about the possibility of superficial knowledge. <laughs> uh. Also, you know, having spent longer in doing those rituals and in the order than most of the original members did, um, my experience, I think, is very different. I think a lot of modern initiates' experiences of the traditions as they've developed and continue to grow are very different from the original members, and we should be very careful not to glorify those original folks who, who didn't have the benefits of even their own completed rituals. We got the benefits of their completed rituals and we got to go through a system in a completed form that they made, but never really got to experience the way a lot of us today got to experience it. And as a result, I think we had often as profound, if not more profound experiences a hundred years later, going through whatever variants of the orders that there are. I mean, there's some essential things that need to be done well and done right, but otherwise we're human beings and the magic comes from us. Magic doesn't come from some ancient fact like uh, Arthur Mackin would argue around the creation of Solomon's Temple. Um, I don't know a single Mason that, that believes that, including myself. So, This article will examine the evidential basis for Mackin's intuition. We will trace the disparate sources and origins of the different parts of the LBRP, analyzing in turn the successive component parts of the ritual, we are going to unscramble the egg. This is, perhaps surprisingly, an exercise that has not been undertaken before. One of the things I'm so excited about finding this essay sent to me by my lovely brother, Frater Mercurio, um, is uh, this is something I was actually about to ask um, Tabby and uh, Nick Farrell cause, and some others who I've been, you know, chat to on and off about I was actually about to ask some questions about some elements of the LBRP and certain stages of development because I know a lot about it but but there's uh you know it's it's interesting stuff and now here this article comes out so it's very cool very timely um the LBRP will serve as our, in our analysis as a microcosmic exemplar of processes that operated more broadly when Victorian occultists sought to revive or recreate the Western esoteric tradition in modern times. The Golden Dawn was established in London in 1888. It was the first group of the English ritual magic revival to experience any degree of success. The structure of the order was essentially Masonic, being based on initiation into private lodges or temples, through a system of hierarchical grades. You could argue that the fact that I think it was based on a series of initiations through the five elements, that that is uh, initiations in the five elements, is that really owned by masonry or is that pretty, eh, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think you know what I mean. Anyway. The, the it, we get definitely some of the bias of the author shows through. Um, a lot of people like to, if they know a lot about masonry, they like to see things through the Masonic lens. If they come from a, a Wiccan background or a pagan background, they see things through the pagan lens. If you told a, a group of Wiccans, hardcore witches even, that, that initiation through the five elements was a Masonic thing, 
I think you'd find them be a little upset. They'd be like, really? Really? It's Masonic? Because there's ceremonies through the five elements? It's like, oh, well, it's hierarchical grade systems, so that's Masonic. Well, okay, fine. The Golden Dawn's rituals from a highly, form a highly elaborate and rather confusing system based on complex interlocking religious and mystical symbolism. The way that rituals interact and interlock and lead you through the histories of some of the Western mystery traditions is, is, is actually quite fabulous, in my opinion. The rites may be seen variously as an impressive monument of scholarship and erudition, a fine piece of late romantic performance art, I think the word psychodrama would be more appropriate. Or, if one shares Machen's perspective, a confusing, semi-coherent mishmash that will have served to confuse rather than to enlighten. Oh, I love it. For a more favorable assess- assessment of Machen than Machen C. Bogdan, Bogdan's Western esotericism, quoting in turn from Gerald York to the same effect. In any event, the Golden Dawn system was distinctively a product of its time. Amen, aren't we all? The Golden Dawn rituals had their origin in the cipher MS, which means manuscript, a mysterious document which takes its name from the fact that it was written in a cipher derived from the Polygraphia, 1561, of the German abbot and scholar Johannes Trithemius. The cipher MS came to light under disputed circumstances through the offices and of the physician and Freemason William Wynne Westcott, 1848-1925. This document's authorship remains unconfirmed, but it may well have been composed by another Mason, the recently deceased occultist Kenneth Mackenzie, 1833-1886. And this is a note, this, is, this theory was advocated by, amongst others, the leading Golden Dawn historian R. A. Gilbert, Bob Gilbert, see Providence, un- Providence Unknown, a tentative solution, another article supplement to Providence Unknown, and from Cipher to Enigma, and the Golden Dawn Scrapbook. That's, this is, just so you know, that's the classic sort of out, slightly outdated theories that it came from Mackenzie, um, especially given what we know about Liebe, Licht und Leben, and uh, the Fraulein. Monsieur Fräulein Sprengel and, and the German lodges uh, that have been much more elucidated now by the likes of Samuel Robinson's uh, researchers and uh, so much more information we have on the German German temples because more people like myself with German have been going over there and going through the the boxes of files in the Masonic libraries and looking stuff up including the LBRP, which I believe we're going to get to from a a Masonic source here. It contains only a skeletal outline of rituals and doctrine. For example, it prefigures the LBRP and the other pentagram rituals of the developed Golden Dawn system, but it nowhere sets them out in full. The Golden Dawn rites are a strange mixture of scholarly research and mysticism, the product of antiquarian, if not scholarly, research motivated by a desire to experience supernatural communion with divinity and, indeed, to become divine. That's a quote from Fuller's Anglo-Catholic Clergy, page 189, and that's Fuller, that's Tony Fuller's PhD dissertation, which I'm, I've read most of now at this point. I'm not sure if, if it's correct that it was for a, a supernatural desire, but um, I'll have to keep that in mind as I finish up Fuller's Part 2 of his dissertation. <clears throat> it's a, it, there's a classic argument that 
theosis, the process of becoming divine, uh, through uh, whether it's through you know through alchemy as we would say today, uh, is about becoming supernatural. So the word supernatural is highly problematic because why do we need to go beyond nature? Why can't nature be vast enough enough to contain the things previously circumscribed as supernaturalism? And that's uh, of course the main thesis of my thesis, my my dissertation work, which you can get. There is still very little published work on the documentary sources of the rituals. The process by which they were composed remains obscure. The evidence simply does not survive. Most of the credit for putting the rituals into their final form is normally given to Westcott's protege Samuel Little McGregor Mathers, 1854 to 1918. Mathers was an eccentric who spent many hours in the British Museum's reading room trawling through the Western esoteric tradition for material to revive. He was not necessarily solely responsible for elaborating the Gondon system. In particular, it has been argued that Westcott had a greater role than is generally been recognized. But this article will proceed on the assumption that he may be credited as the principal hand. Yes, we know this from Ari Gilbert's from Cipher to Enigma, and it's quite well known that Westcott actually produced a lot more material than we thought. It's also well known that Moyna Mathers produced a ton more material than we we thought, um, including scrying the tools of the inner order rituals and the amount of stuff she did with with Yeats and Mathers on the Celtic mysteries is is not quite recognized yet. And let's not forget the almost $3 million that Annie Horniman gave to the Matherses so that they could keep playing at being magicians for over a decade. So I think a lot of the women of the Golden Dawn, they really loved what they were doing. They believed in what they were doing. And they lived in an era where it was so normal for men to take credit and be the, the, the front forward faces of things. They just sort of, they were busy doing the work. You know, I think a lot of them were. And anyone who's been spoken very loudly about uh, have what they've done and what they were a part of, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're sort of telling you a lot about themselves just by taking that approach, as it were. Like, it's very easy for, for Arthur Mackin to criticize something that he didn't have to create, and the amount of work that went into creating it was tremendous. The LBRP was the only ritual other than the grade ceremonies that was revealed to members of the Golden Dawn's first, or outer order, which prepared members for entry into the more exclusive second, or inner order. The LBRP was the nearest thing to a purely magical ritual found within the first order curriculum. Yeah, in the old days, all you had basically was the LBRP, and that's it. And uh, a lot of orders that call themselves the most traditional ones today stick to that. I think it's a bit dogmatic to do that, but each to their own, as long as you're keeping the system alive. The nice thing about a traditional or originally codified outer order is you're going to go through it real fast and be kind of come an adept in like a year or two instead of five or seven years or whatever. It was disclosed to neophytes immediately after their initiation in order that they may have protection against opposing forces and also that they may form some idea of how to attract and to come into communication with spiritual and invisible being things. And that's a quote from Rigardi's The Golden Dawn. Members were counseled to perform the ritual in the evening. A slightly different version, geared to invoking rather than banishing, was to be performed in the morning. Again, from Rigardi's Golden Dawn. It may also be noted here that a cut-down version of the rite appears in the well-known Bornless ritual. 
In the context of the Golden Dawn system, the LBRP and its invoking equivalents sat alongside a set of other similar rites known as the Supreme Ritual of the Pentagram and the Rituals of the Hexagram. In addition to daily performances of the LBRP, Golden Dawn initiates were recommended to use the ritual for cleansing before a magical operation, as a protection against impure magnetism, and as part of a technique to get rid of obsessing or disturbing thoughts. They were also told to visualize themselves performing it as an exercise in meditation. As is well known, the Golden Dawn splintered into pieces from, from around 1900. Its successor orders, such as the Stella Matutina and the Alpha et Omega, were mostly moribund by the outbreak of World War II. Some of the Golden Dawn's rituals appeared in a pirated edition in Aleister Crowley's periodical The Equinox from 1909 to 1913. The rest were published in 1937 to 1940 by Israel Regardi, who had accessed them through his membership of the Stella Matutina. Interestingly, Aleister Crowley played a significant role in the preservation and transmission of the LBRP. He incorporated it into his Liber O, 1909, which seems to have been the first time that it appeared in print. He subsequently produced a version of the ritual in an ancient Greek idiom, the Star Ruby, in Liber 25, 1913 as well as publishing a lesser-known adaptation of it in Liber V, Vel Reguli, 1929. Curiously enough, the next couple of publications of the LBRP came from Christians rather than Crowleyans. In 1915, an initiate of the Stella Matutina, Father J.C. Fitzgerald, published a pared-down and Christianized version of the rite. See uh, Fuller's Anglo-Catholic Clergy. Subsequently, in 1930, the Christian esotericist Dion Fortune publicized a key element of the LBRP. In her book Psychic Self-Defense, Fortune recommended the use of banishing earth pentagrams as protective tools, and she described herself as using pentagrams in combination with certain names of power that are unsuitable for disclosure in these pages. Dun, dun, dun. Fortune, Psychic Self-Defense, which is where David Bowie started read and started learning and drawing pentagrams all over his, his L.A. home during his White Duke phase or whatever. As we shall see, there these are more or less obvious references to key elements of the LBRP. After Fortune, there came Israel Regardi, who published the text of the LBRP in his Tree of Life in 1932, following which he concluded included it in his full edition of the Golden Dawn Rituals. Gerald Gardner, the founder of Wicca, subsequently imported the LBRP into early versions of the Wiccan sacred text, The Book of Shadows. See page 7 of Ye Book of Ye Art Magical, Gardner's original MS, which underlay the, the Book of Shadows. A version is available online at oldways.org. Although the ritual did not survive in its complete form, as an established part of the Wiccan tradition, Gardner did bequeath to Wicca various elements that are found within it, including the use of the pentagrams and the practice of casting a magical circle by reference to the cardinal points of the compass. In broader perspective, the first mass market magical self-help book um, to recommend the LBRP seems to have been The Magician, 1959, which was published by one of Dion Fortune's followers, W.E. Butler. As we have already noted, the LBRP has since become ubiquitous in popular introductions to esotericism and ceremonial magic. Note Gardner 
was not, however, concerned with banishment. He noted that ceremonial magician's circles, like that cast in the LBRP, were regarded as being protective, whereas a witch's circle is to keep in the powers which they believe they can raise from their own bodies and to prevent it from being dissipated. That's witchcraft today. Contrast the words of Israel Gardi, the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram is the ceremonial magician's way of casting a circle of protection, the middle pillar. That's the book. As a matter of historical accuracy, there is doubt as to whether circles did originally have a protective function for ritual magicians. See Kikafer, Magic in the Middle Ages, page 161. Now, considering Nick Farrell's uh, article, he says, when we look at the Golden Dawn, we assume that the original adepts got it all right and that the things we know and love about the Golden Dawn were there in the first place. Yet study of Golden Dawn history and texts has revealed the original Golden Dawn was nowhere near as complete as, late, complete as later developments. Things that are happening in modern Golden Dawn orders are a lot more magical and interesting than anything Westcott and Mathers dreamed up. But since the lines between the past Golden Dawn orders are cut, we often miss something important from the past that is staring directly in our face. In my previous papers on the lesser banishing ritual, I was looking at its use in terms of the sphere of sensation and the zero equals zero initiation or ritual. I had come to the conclusion that the LBRP was a microcosmic reenactment of the zero equals zero, which if performed daily would instill that important initiation symbols into the sphere of sensation. However, there was a flaw in this idea, and that was the concept of banishing. Why would you need to banish all the time? True, the zero equals zero ritual is about a fourfold purification and consecration, but there is also the connection with the divine forces that is the opposite of banishing. Exactly, I love I love Farrell's point. Though to be, you know, in my experience, um, I've never seen it so much as banishing as purifying, because there's an invocational element. Well, and even you're you bringing in the archangels as well. It's just, uh, yeah, I think the word banishing is problematic, but that's maybe just my opinion. Who knows? Farrell says, the breakthrough came when I was talking with a very experienced magician who is not connected with the Golden Dawn tradition. She flippantly said that one of the problems she had with the GD tradition was that it was banishing, banishing, banishing all the time. If you keep doing that, you will have nothing left. She believed that the Golden Dawn was told to do an LBRP before every ritual, which the modern Golden Dawn does. But was this true? For years, I had known that the Golden Dawn had an invoking ritual of the pentagram, but I had never actually used it, so wanted to find out what the original GD used. An invoking pentagram? And I went back to the original instructions and knowledge papers to find out. Surprisingly, the rituals of the pentagram papers for the outer order were consistent since the beginning to the closure of Fare Ra, but what I saw when I read them was something I didn't expect. For years, like many people, I had assumed that I knew the banishing ritual of the pentagram, so I didn't actually read the paper other than to check that I was saying the same words as everyone else in the order. Looking at it with fresh eyes, it revealed some things I didn't know. Firstly, the ritual described is called the lesser ritual of the pentagram, not the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. And we know this, of course. Secondly, the knowledge paper does not describe the banishing ritual at all. Quote, make in the air towards the east the invoking pentagram as shown, bringing the point of the dagger to the center of the pentagram. 
The banishing ritual gets an aside in the last paragraph of the paper. For banishing, use the same ritual, but reversing the directions of the lines of the pentagram. The first thing that crossed my mind was that the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram was considered much less important than its invoking cousin, and is simply a footnote. This is the complete opposite of received wisdom. The next thing that was clear is that the invoking pentagram was different from the method that the modern GD teaches to do the banishing pentagram. In the modern GD, the divine name is projected into the pentagram using the sign of the enterer at the point that the name is vibrated. This is not described in the knowledge paper, where the divine names are placed in the invoking pentagram with the, a dagger. The implication is that a banishing ritual of the pentagram would be carried out in the same way. So where did the idea of a projection sign with the pentagram come about? In the second paper for neophytes, the use of the pentagram ritual, the projection sign is mentioned. The neophyte is instructed to imagine an image of an obsession and project it out of your aura with the saluting sign of a neophyte, and when it is about three feet away, prevent its return with the sign of silence. The lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram is then performed to dissolve it. This is minor, but it certainly indicates that modern GD groups do their lesser pentagrams a slightly different way from the original order. This is fine, as the reason used, reasons used, i.e. the outwards projection of energy using the divine names, are valid and are an enhancement of the original idea. Another GD paper suggests that a neophyte could use the banishing ritual at night and the invoking one in the morning. I assume that was because the banishing ritual would enable you to sleep better. However, it is also clear that, other than the reference to getting rid of obsessions, the banishing ritual is not any more important than the invoking one. Indeed, when the paper talks about using the lesser ritual of the pentagram to enhance visualization skills, it is talking about the invoking and not the banishing. And that's uh, quite fascinating, actually. Though, I'm not sure. It, it could be a matter of the fact that just it's a short document that they were originally written down in and often you'll write something at the bottom of a document as you're creating things and you'll know that it's still referencing the re reproduction or repetition of what's done above but it's it's just not written that way I mean that's well, that happens a lot with manuscripts and as I've been like spending crazy amount of hours putting together the the Yates Celtic mystery initiations, you can see that in the manuscripts, you can see that in the different versions, and you can see where there's assumed knowledge that should be applied and where there is uh, an intentional creation of variation. Farrell says, let us look at the other witness. Now, while I still think Aleister Crowley is the most overrated magician since Paul Daniels, he is a valid historical resource about what he was taught about the LBP. He takes on the ritual, which says, his take on the ritual, which says that the little ritual is the key to everything magical, appears in magic without tears, but fails insofar as it is not clear whether it is to the banishing or to the invoking ritual that he refers. The fact that he refers to the rite by its traditional name of the lesser ritual of the pentagram probably means that he is referring to the invoking pentagram rather than the banishing one. See, I think that's a safe assumption if we take the manuscript being primarily written about the invoking one, but if we take the manuscript as a bedrock of something that went into then common practice and was done either equally as banishing and invoking or even more as banishing, then that assumption might sort of fall apart uh, that Crowley was referring to the invoking just because the source document emphasizes the invoking and then in a footnote tells you how to do it with banishing. 
It's, it's an interesting question, really. The only other reference we have to the lesser ritual of pentagram is in inner order documents where it points out that they work because they have similarities to the earth pentagrams of the inner order. They are not earth pentagrams because they are not opened by spirit or have the sign of an ox in them, however. Quote, this lesser ritual of the pentagram is only of use in general and unimportant invocations. Its use is permitted to the outer order that neophytes may have protection against opposing forces and might have some idea how to attract and come into communication with spiritual and invisible things. So now we have some idea of how the lesser ritual of the pentagram is supposed to be used by those in the outer order and how it is just as important to use the invoking pentagram as it is the banishing one. And of course, if you were brought up in an order similar to mine, uh, you would do the only the banishing one for the neophyte grade, and you wouldn't start invoking until the zealotor grade, which, to be fair, is basically 30 days of doing it. Nineveh Shadrach, my mentor, had me required. I, I filled out forms that outlined in detail, excruciating detail, the performance and documentation of over of 232 LBRPs before I could take the test out of neophyte, which I did. Uh, and I was allowed to do as many as you wanted in a day, though, with some limit, I believe. Anyway, somehow I got through it in, uh, speedily, as many do. Farrell says, The banishing is designed to protect by repelling the sphere of sensation from lower astral nasties and connecting the person to the higher self. It can be used to remove these parts, those parts of your personality, such as habits, that you do not want. And it's very good at that. Let's, let's be clear. Wheeler continues, we may now move on to examine the component parts of the LBRP itself. We will employ the ritual text contained in Israel Regardi's original publication of the Golden Dawn Papers, which appears to be essentially the same as that used by the original order. Footnote from Regardi's Golden Dawn, there have been no advances in research that have led to any modification of the text in subsequent editions of Regardi's work. The text of the LBRP was not included in R.G. Torrens's separate publication of the Golden Dawn Rites in 1973, The Secret Rituals. The earliest text of the LBRP, which the present author has been able to locate, is found in a collection of MSS manuscripts held at Freemasons Hall in London, call number GBR 1991 GD 2-1-13. If anyone wants to go look at it themselves, the author intends to analyze these manuscripts further in a later publication but it is sufficient to note here that their contents are consistent with the dating in the 1890s. The discussion below will indicate a couple minor respects in which this very early text differs from Regardi's. And, of course, the reason I jumped over to Farrell's research and, and stuff is because it's quite contradictory to what we just heard. So, there is debate and discussion is alive and well in this arena, and a lot of other uh, leaders of orders will talk to you about variations and versions in manuscripts forms that they have from from later developments after the 1900 split. The Kabbalistic cross. Take a steel dagger in the right hand. Okay, and the steel dagger, it's it's quite clear that an, a magical implement is not a key thing. So for any of you who have been doing it with your hand for all this time, don't worry. It's not like you've been making a mistake. Um, don't even worry about that. Take a steel dagger in your right hand, face east, touch thy forehead, say, Ata, thou art. Touch thy breast, say, Malkut, the kingdom. 
touch thy right shoulder, say Vigabura, and the power, touch thy left shoulder, and say Vigadula, and the glory, clasp thy hands before thee, and say Leolam forever. Dagger between fingers, point up, and say Amen. There's so much to say about that right away, but I'm going to bite my tongue. This is the first part of the LBRP. It was used elsewhere in the Golden Dawn system in group rituals. The first thing to note is that the ritual script is written partly in a foreign language, Hebrew, with English archaisms, thy and thee. These unusual linguistic features are characteristic of sacred texts in different cultures. Archaic English would have been familiar to Victorian Englishmen as a sacral vernacular from the Anglican liturgy and the King James Bible. Hebrew is obviously the sacred language of Judaism, and for the Golden Dawn members it would have had more specifically associations with the Kabbalah. It bears noting, however, that the Hebrew elements of the LBRP are linguistically problematic. It would be more correct to use the definite article, Ha, in front of the names of the three Sephira, Malkut, Geburah, and Gedula. Well, yeah, you'd have Veha, Ve is and, so you'd, yeah, well, that, of course. The Sephardic pronunciation is used, but again, it is in an imperfect form. For example, the names of the Sephirot, Malkuth, is rendered in a correct fashion. The contrast, in contrast to the Ashkenazi, Malkuz, Malkus, and, but Gevura is rendered as Gebura. This is proof, if proof were needed, that we are dealing with a constructed ritual put together by Gentiles. No, that's a freaking flaw. That is not correct because you don't know Hebrew, and Geburah is how that word was said up until the 20th century when Hebrew significantly changed and, and Geburah became pronounced Geburah, and, and the whole pronunciation system shifted over by a very common linguistic change in consonantal sounds. This is something you'll learn if you ever do a preliminary course in biblical Hebrew with someone who also knows modern Hebrew fluently. And don't even get me started on the ata for thine is the kingdom, or for thine. Yeah, don't, let's not even get started on that right now. Anyway, so uh, Wheeler argues that this is proof that the ritual was rendered by Gentiles because they said Geburah and not Geburah. Anyway, I think that is absolute, that is, that is proof of something else, actually. <laughs> One might also make the point that there is no sign in the LBRP of the Aramaic language, which is just as important as Hebrew in the Kabbalistic tradition. Boom. That is very correct. Absolutely. Of course, I can absolutely tell you why Aramaic was not used by these folks, and why you'll never see reference to Aramaic back then, because it wasn't called Aramaic, actually. It was called Chaldean up until the 20th century, and, you know, early 20th century. Anyway, moving on. The ritual begins with the practitioner facing east, and indeed east was a place of significance in the Golden Dawn ceremonies too. It is well known that the traditional Christian liturgy in both its Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox forms was performed facing an altar located in the east. This eastward-facing posture was invested with eschatological significance. One turns to the east to greet the returning Lord. Eschatological, of course, comes from the Greek eschaton and means things concerning the end, because eschaton means the end, so end things of the end time. The posture is far older than Christianity, however. Oh, there's a note. Um, this point was made 
by no less a person than Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, in the spirit of the liturgy. Note also in this context his point at 83, very early in the East was linked with the sign of the cross. I am not really a fan of referencing Joseph Ratzinger, and the head who was the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith from 1981 onward, when he renamed it from the Holy Inquisition. Why are we referencing that douchebag? If you want to reference a cardinal with uh, historical esoteric knowledge, why don't you re reference his opponent, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who ran the Congregation for Interfaith Dialogue or whatever in the Vatican. They were very opponent people, and why the, we, the Nazi became, one became the Pope, we will never know, though some of you I'm sure think you do know, and maybe you're right. So regarding facing east, the posture is far older than Christianity, however. It may be traced back to ancient pagan practices, not only from the Greco-Roman world, but also from the Near East, India, and Africa, which were linked to sun worship. It is noteworthy in this context that the cipher manuscript associates the east with the rising sun, the golden dawn, so to speak. The cardinal points moreover, have symbolic meanings in Freemasonry, a point to which we will return. Of course, the cardinal points also reference older magical traditions that predate Freemasonry, so I'm not sure why we're going to Freemasonry when we can point to things like John Dee and earlier grimoire sources. As will become clear, this conjuries of Christian, pagan, and Masonic symbolism is entirely typical of the LBRP and the Golden Dawn system generally. Yeah, again, I'm not quite sure why people people go back to masonry, but masonry is far predated by grimoire sources, and grimoire sources have a lot more influence on the development of Golden Dawn and other magical traditions than Freemasonry. Freemasonry was more like a vessel for people who were interested in these older magical systems to meet and interact with each other. Um, so was the Theosophical Society and the Hermetic Society. A lot of these groups, it's not so much that the knowledge was being sustained by these groups, it's, but these groups were containers for people who carried the knowledge to share and interact with each other and develop their erudition and practices. As we have intimated, the three main nouns mentioned in the text are Kabbalistic. Malkuth and Geburah are the names of Sephiroth, while Gedula, greatness, is an alternative term for the Sephira Hesed. In carrying out the prescribed physical actions, the magus is identifying his physical body with the tree of life, in which Malkut is at the base, Geburah and Hesed are on either side of the central pillar. Despite these plainly Kabbalistic associations, however, the basic framework of this part of the LBRP would seem to have Christian inspiration. Not only does it involve making the sign of the cross, like a Catholic or Orthodox believer, the text recited by the initiate is strongly resembles the concluding part or doxology of the Lord's Prayer, Pater Noster, in its Protestant iteration. This text ultimately comes from the Bible, Matthew sixteen thirteen. For yours is the kingdom, Basileia, and the power, Dynamis, and the glory, Doxa, forever, Amen. And it's, we have, there we have the Koine Greek words, um, because that's what the New Testament was written in. Also, this version is used by Roman Catholics. Uh, very frequently, so I'm not sure why it would be said that it's a Protestant version since Catholics and Orthodox do often similar, if not the same version. And then there's really old versions where you they would say things like, 
in the name of the lover, the beloved, and love itself as they cross themselves, because those are other names of the Trinity, the lover, the beloved, and love. So there's very old versions that are out there for researchers who want to get into early Christian theology and, and liturgy. Well, here's a note on this. At some point, the direction of the horizontal part of the cross was altered from the Roman Catholic left to right to the Eastern Orthodox right to left. This is apparent from a comparison of the Regardi text with the earlier text mentioned in N16 above. Oddly, however, the earlier text adopts the Orthodox tradition of making the cross with the thumb and the first two fingers, whereas Regardi's does not. Catholics generally use the whole hand. Perfect. Very well said. Bible scholars have long known that this is a problematic text. It does not appear in the earliest surviving MSS manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, nor in the parallel version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke. It appears only in the later manuscript of the Byzantine textual tradition. It is probably in an interpolation, and it is left out by most new Bible translations, just as it was absent from the Vulgate and the traditional Roman Catholic liturgy. Nevertheless, the doxology has a long history. The early Christian treatise known as the Didache, 1st and 2nd century CE, was influenced by Matthew's gospel, contains a version of the Lord's Prayer with the following line, For yours is the power, dynamis, and the glory, doxa, forever. Yes, there was a strong oral tradition, believe it or not, from the time of Jesus up until the actual writing of the gospels by the communities that wrote them, because they weren't written by individual people, they were written by different communities over a period of time, and largely inspired by the walled paintings that we have through the early Christian churches and uh, catacombs and symbolism that they carried on the oral tradition up until the writing of those first gospel. The only Christian writings, remember, that we have from as almost the time when Jesus was alive are half of the letters of St. Paul, the, the ones that are called the uncontested epistles. The other ones were written later on. Wheeler says it is quite unlikely that the doxology was inspired by a text from the Hebrew Bible from the first book of Chronicles, the same text, in fact, that Kabbalistic rabbis believe disclosed the names of the Sephiroth. The relevant passage consists of the following words, which are attributed to King David. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, Gedulah, or in the Septuagint, Megalosin, the power, Geburah, or Dynamis, and the glory, Tiferet, or Kaukema, the victory, Netzach, Nike, and the majesty, Hod, or Iskis. For all that is, that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, Mamlaka. O Lord, you are exalted as head above all. That's First Chronicles 29 verse 11. Translation from the New Revised Standard Version. The word kingdom does not appear as a noun in the Septuagint, which is the LXX. So there is no correspondence with Basileia in the Lord's Prayer doxology. I also don't recommend you use the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible ever. We can be quite sure that the creators of the Golden Dawn knew about this passage and the consequent correspondence between the Lord's Prayer doxology and the Kabbalistic Sephiroth. Here is a translation of a passage from the central Kabbalistic text known as the Zohar, which refers to the passage from Chronicles. And this is the Zohar 663. And in the book of the dissertation of the school of Rav Yeyeva, the elder, it is thus said and established that the beginning of the beard cometh from the supernal Hesed, Hesed, mercy. 664. Concerning which it is written, Lek Yehevavhe, 
which of course they would pronounce Adonai or Hashem, Hegedula vegebura vehatiferet, vehatiferet. So they have the definite article substitute as well as the the. Leka tetragrammaton hagedula vehagebura vehatiferet thine o tetragrammaton gedula another name for hased gebura and tiferet the names of the fourth fifth and sixth sephirot which Protestants usually add to the end of the Lord's prayer substituting however malkuth for gedula thine o tetragrammaton are the mercy the power and the glory or beauty and all these are so and thus it the beard commenceth. And this is from the Zohar. You can see, and this part, this version of the Zohar is, is taken from Mather's Kabbalah Unveiled, page 327. The passage comes from a portion on the ha- Hazinu, chapter 41, in the Lesser Holy Assembly. It's important to also note that uh, Mather's translation of the Zohar comes is a section of the Zohar, and it's from the Latin, because Mather's did not know uh, Hebrew well enough to translate it, let alone the Aramaic that the Zohar was written in. That said, the significance of this translation is that it comes from none other than Samuel McGregor Mathers, and it was first published in 1887, just before the inception of the Golden Dawn. Indeed, Mathers' translation of the Zohar was the first translation to appear in English, albeit it was only a partial one based on Christian Knorr von Rosenroth's earlier translations into Latin. Yet the occultist who first noticed the resemblance between the Lord's Prayer, doxology, and the Kabbalistic Sephiroth was not Mathers, it was Elephus Levy. Levy had been a Roman Catholic seminarian, so he would perhaps have been struck by the fact that the doxology in the Greek New Testament, which he and other clerics studied in seminary, was omitted from the church-approved prayers that ordinary Catholics recited and listened to in the course of their daily observances. This anomaly seems to have set him thinking Perhaps the doxology had a mystical significance and had been deliberately withheld from the uninitiated. He wrote, quote, The sign of the cross adopted by Christians does not belong to them exclusively. This also is Kabbalistic and represents the oppositions and tetradic equilibrium of the elements. We see by the occult versicle of the Lord's Prayer that it was originally made after two manners, or at least it, that it was characterized by two entirely different formulae, one reserved for priests and initiates, the other imparted to neophytes and the profane. For example, the initiate said, raising his hand to his forehead, for thine, then added, is, and continuing as he brought down his hand to his breast, the kingdom, then to the left shoulder, the justice, and afterwards to the right shoulder, and the mercy. Then clasping his hands, he added, in the generating ages, tibi sunt malchut et gebura et chesed per eonus. A sign of the cross, which is absolutely magnificently Kabbalistic, which the profanations of Gnosticism have lost completely to the official and militant church. This sign, made after this manner, should proceed and terminate the conjuration of the four. Alephus Levy. And it's said that he never practiced magic by most... um, it's argued heavily that he never practiced. But it sounds like he was doing some practice there, right, in in that passage... If he's talking about why you, what you should essentially do before the conjuration of the four elements, let us not forget it's from Alephus Levi that the prayers of the, the four elemental spirits come, and those are essential and foundational to most of our magical workings, if not our daily workings. If you're not using one of those prayers and working with the elements on a regular basis in the elemental phases of your work, then, well, you're missing out.
So that comes from Elephus Levy, Transcendental Magic, or Ritual et Dogme de la Ouh, Magie. Mathers and the other Golden Dawn leaders were quite familiar with Levy's work, and the fact that they replicated the Hebrew solicisms in the passage above makes the influence almost certain. We may observe that Levy was seeking to add two additional components to the Kabbalistic symbology of the Sephira and the Lord's Prayer doxology. That's weird. This is an academic paper, but he says symbology, and that's not a word. First, he made reference to the elements, meaning the four elements of the classical Greek philosophers, earth, air, fire, and water. The conjuration of the four denotes the magician's endeavor to impose his will on the four elements by undertaking various exorcisms and prayers, which were, in fact, borrowed into other parts of the Golden Dawn system. This conjuration exercise had deep roots. The Grimoires of Christian ritual magic used the idiom of conjuration or exorcism for both spirits and objects, and the tradition of exorcising objects goes back at least as far as patristic Christian baptismal ceremonies. The four elements will become more important in the subsequent parts of the LBRP. For the present, we may note that aside from their pagan Greek antecedents, they featured in traditional Jewish thought, including the Kabbalistic tradition. And for that, you can look at uh, some of the Mishnah, Mishnah Torah, Maimonides, for a Kabbalistic example. See the uh, quotation from the Zohar in the next section. It may also be observed here that Levi considered four to be a sacred number, a notion that goes back to the ancient Pythagoreans and their doctrine of the Tetrakis. As we will see, the number four is embedded in the structure of the LBRP. It relates not only to the four elements, but also to the four cardinal directions, four divine names, and four archangels. Of course, the word watchtower actually would have been one that was considered essential here because they were all super into John D. The second new component that Levy added was the Roman Catholic sign of the cross. The use of the dagger as a tool to perform the crossing motion may come from the tradition of Solomonic magic. May. Says see Key of Solomon, the use of the dagger, however, seems to be a later development. The earlier versions of the LBRP text mentioned at note 16 above states more vaguely that the tool should be any convenient steel instrument or other weapon, and that the initiate of the Adeptus Minor Grade should use his magical sword or lotus wand, in his first publication of the LBRP in 1932, Rigardi wrote that the sword to represent the dispelling critical faculty of the ruach, a Kabbalistic term for the level one of the levels of the soul, it literally means breath, huach, it's pronounced more like huach in modern Hebrew, is usually the instrument employed in this connection. And of course, though, if you talk to many adepts today, well, we may use it, one of our we may use our sword or lotus wand, or we may just still use our finger because your hands work perfectly fine. Keep that in mind, folks. Don't get obsessed with tools and, and toys. Cruciform symbolism is a recurring theme in the Golden Dawn Rites. There is the cross, the crucifix, the crux ansata, which is the ankh, and in the ritual of the Adeptus Minor Grade, the initiate is physically bound to a cross. Superficially, this is unsurprising given that the Golden Dawn originated among Christians in a Christian country. Well, I like that he also left out some key components there, so normally I wouldn't even say something like that, um, but it left out some huge stuff, so whatever. But the crosses in the Golden Dawn system are not, or not necessarily, the cross of Christ. Correct. 
In general terms, of course, the cross may be seen as one of the basic transcultural symbols of humankind. Ooh, yeah, that's good. You go, Wheeler. But we can be more specific than that in identifying what it might have meant to Mathers and his colleagues. In the footnotes to the passage quoted above, Levy, Levy cites sources pointing to the Rosicrucian and Kabbalistic associations of the cross. For other contemporary writers, its associations were outright anti-Christian. There existed a small but significant literature which maintained that the cross was of pagan origin. Yeah, that's, that's sort of taken for granted if you study history at a good school. Uh, see Hislop, The Two Babylons, and uh, History of the Cross by Thomas Inman, Ancient and Pagan and Modern Christian Symbolism. Yeah. It's also often mis not known that the pentagram was a symbol of Jesus used by early Christians. So there's all kinds of stuff that we've just had uh, redacted from our popular education system. Yeah. As we will see, the cross was also specifically linked to the Golden Dawn rites in to the Egyptian deity Osiris. The cruciform motifs in the Golden Dawn then offer a good example of the skillfully ambiguous or syncretic way in which the order's creators made use of the diverse stock of religious symbology that they had available to them. In conclusion, the origins of the first part of the LBRP lie in a series of eclectic connections made by 19th century occultists between such disparate bodies of material as Kabbalistic mysticism rooted in the Hebrew Bible, devotional observances from the Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox branches of Christianity, and the legacy of ancient pagan religion. This is an unsurprising extensive yield from a text consisting of only 64 words. Is it, though? Next is the pentagrams. So that's a pretty good overview of the Kabbalistic cross. What shocks me the most is, is the lack of, of study into the actual Hebrew words being said and what their meanings are, uh, as well as the alternate forms of names for the sephira that are being touched on through that ritual of the Kabbalistic cross. So it looks like there's a lot more room for a more in-depth paper to be written going into that. And I didn't even get into the whole... Ata uh, thing, which, yeah, I can't even get into that right now. Mm -hmm. The pentagrams. Here's the text. Make in the air toward the east the invoking pentagram as shown, and bringing the point of the dagger to the center of the pentagram, vibrate the deity name Yodhe imagining that your voice carries forward to the east of the universe. Holding the dagger out before you, go to the south, make the pentagram, and vibrate similarly the deity name Adonai. Go to the west, make the pentagram and vibrate Eheye. Go to the north, make the pentagram and vibrate Agla. Return to the east and complete your circle by bringing the dagger point into the center of the first pentagram. The most prominent feature of this part of the LBRP is the use of the four Hebrew names of God. We may note that a different set of divine names in both Hebrew and the Enochian language of John Dee and Edward Kelly is used in the LBRP's sister ritual, the supreme ritual of the pentagram. These other names include Elohim in the south and El in the west. In truth, using the names of God or gods in magic is a very old practice. Such names were employed in practical Kabbalah. The Hebrew divine and angelic names are attested as being widely used in ancient Jewish magic. Interestingly, Gentiles were already, already borrowing them in this early period. Yep. <laughs> Gideon Bohak has written, 
quote, I, in addition to the Tetragrammaton and its derivatives, we find many of the old epithets of the Jewish God, including Adonai, Sabaoth, El, Shaddai, Ehieh, Asher, Ehieh, I am who I am, or just Ehieh, Holy, 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 the God of the battle formations of Israel, the God of the retributions, the one who sits up upon the cherubim, and the God of the spirits for all flesh, and many others. Yeah, the list goes on, though I'm surprised how many he left out there. That It's a quote from Bohak, Ancient Jewish Magic. I'll see also Wilkinson, Tetragrammaton. This is all of a piece with the Golden Dawn's practices in the LBRP and other rituals. Nevertheless, the LBRP does not merely contain divine names. It presents us specifically with four divine names, which are distributed at the four cardinal points, around a magic circle. This arrangement requires some further analysis. The concept that a different, different spiritual entities are associated with cardinal directions has ancient roots. For example, one Greco-Egyptian magical papyrus contains the following passage in which four names of spirits are associated with the four regions. Quote, Eros, darling, Pasalion et, send me my personal angel tonight to give me information about whatever the concern is. For I do this on order from Panhushithasu, my Greek sucks, at whose order you are to act, because I conjure you by the four regions of the universe, Apsigel, Kakio, Mariot, Manmiarot. Taken from the spell at PGM 7478-90, translation from Betz, the Greek magical papyri. The entities named in this spell are evidently spirits or demons rather than gods. This association of lesser spiritual entities with the cardinal points also survived in the Christian Solomonic tradition from the Hygromantea onwards. More pertinent to our current inquiry, however, is the fact that names of God are used in the Solomonic tradition for purposes including but not confined to empowering magical circles. Magic circles themselves are extremely old, their roots lying in antiquity. Such are the origins of this part of the LBRP. Note also, see generally on the cardinal points and circles in ancient Greco-Egyptian magic, Skinner, Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic. See also Kikifer, Magic in the Middle Ages, on magic circles in later times. How much of this history would Mathers have known? As we shall see, he was certainly familiar with Solomonic magic. In addition, by at least the turn of the 20th century, contemporary scholarship had traced the origin of the protective magic circles of the Christian grimoires back to ancient Assyria. It's a long time ago. It remains unclear whether Mathers knew about this research, but at least one of the relevant scholars knew about him. Note, see Thompson's Semitic Magic, where the eminent archaeologist Reginald Campbell Thompson makes a gratuitously slighting reference to Mather's translation of the Book of Sacred Magic of Abermel and the Mage. As for the Greek magical papyri, Mather's knowledge of them would necessarily have been limited. Some of the material from the papyri had been made public, but they were not published in anything like the full form from Karl Preissendance's Teubner's edition of 1928 to 1931. Mathers was handling materials that had older and perhaps more interesting origins than he even realized. Note the publication history of the papyri is summarized in the introduction to Betts, the Greek magical papyri. If Mathers himself had been asked to explain this part of the LBRP, it is likely that he would have made reference to Freemasonry. 
Freemasonry is the most historically immediate source for the circular motion that is prescribed for the initiate. Circumambulation appears on a number of occasions in the Golden Dawn rituals, and several times it is said expressly to represent the course of the sun. Again, I don't know why Freemasonry is a, is a more ready source than uh, pagan practices, but whatever. Um, see Rigardi, also the Golden Dawn, and uh, a link which is made with the course of the sun in relation to the lesser rituals of the hexagram. The cardinal points were linked together in a pattern of solar symbolism. In the neophyte ritual, it was explained to initiates that the east is where the place the sun rises, and the south is the place of heat and dryness. The west is the, where the setting sun brings about an increase of darkness and decrease of light, and the north symbolizes cold and moisture. In the same way, Freemasonry attributed symbolic meanings related to the path of the sun to the cardinal points and used, used clockwise circumambulation in its ceremonies. The, well, we also go counterclockwise in certain points, but very rarely compared to circumambulating. The traditional Masonic ritual text affirms that the sun rises in the east. The south symbolizes the sun at its meridian. The west marks the setting sun. And the north is the place of darkness. See Mackey's an Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. One influential 19th century Masonic encyclopedia declares that it's, this symbolism is a portion of the old sun worship of which we find so many relics in Gnosticism, in Hermetic philosophy, and in Freemasonry. As other esotericists have observed, circumambulation may be found in the rituals of a number of religions around the world, with the clockwise solar patterning being associated in particular with Hindu and Tibetan traditions. For that, see René Gunon and his book The Great Triad. The cardinal points have other meanings in the LBRP besides representing the stations of the sun. We may reiterate that a god name is assigned to each of them. We must also mention here the links between the cardinal points and the four classical elements. In the Golden Dawn rituals, east is associated with air, south with fire, west with water, and north with earth. These associations are all part of a broader pattern of mystical correspondences, a subject of intense interest for Golden Dawn occultists. It is well known that a staple of the Western esoteric tradition is the enterprise of identifying and exploiting correspondences between different ideas and things located in different realms of reality. This enterprise has been central to Western esotericism and magic since antiquity, when Middle and Neoplatonist philosophers and theurgists posited that the cosmos was permeated by synthemata, or symbola, signs, signatures, of the gods. The Golden Dawn ranks alongside the Catholic Reformation-era scholar Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, 1486-1535, to as one of the most influential generators of correspondences in history. Its developed system of correspondences was immortalized in 777, an enormous and disorderly collection of matches between Hebrew letters, Kabbalistic concepts, gods, colors, gemstones, tarot cards, drugs, and other things besides, which was subsequently published in lightly edited form by Aleister Crowley in 1909. Of course, he didn't write that. Mathers wrote that and gave it to him to publish one during his time in Paris and his alleged 5-6 initiation. <laughs> yeah. To return to the correspondences embedded in the LBRP, one Golden Dawn text explains the attribution of the elements to the cardinal points by referring to the winds. 
And that said, uh, yes, Crowley got his five six in Paris, I know, but I don't think it was a full initiation. That's why I always like to joke about it, because I don't think they had a functioning vault in all the tools, and they certainly didn't have three adepti, and it sounds like Mathers just sort of sceptered him, gave him the honorary title to as a power play against Yates and Horniman because he was pissed off about having them, his uh, faucet of money cut off by Horniman and consequently expelled her from the order, leading to this schism. I can certainly tell you that if someone, some member of an order I was in or had founded was give, gave me a couple, several millions of dollars over 10 years, I would feel bad about complaining because, you know, it's a lot of money. And to expect you should get more than two, three million by our standards today over 10 years, like, come on, come on. Anyway, this attribution is derived from the nature of the winds, for the easterly wind is of the nature of air, more especially the south wind bringeth into action the nature of fire, west winds bring with them moisture and rain, north winds are cold and dry like the earth. That's from Regardi, the Golden Dawn. The same text also puts forward an alternative zodiacal set of correspondences, fire east, earth south, air west, and water north. And I will, of course, point out that in the grimoires, there's different schemas similar to the variation here, and that depends, again, on what you're working you're doing. A lot of people who just have a little bit of knowledge about this stuff don't understand the difference between pentagram and hexagram rituals and zodiacal workings and how the format and rubrics change based on which spheres and levels you're working with. Back to the winds. Wheeler says this explanation is surprising and idiosyncratic. It allows us to identify the ultimate source with a high degree of confidence, a 2nd century CE treatise known as the Tetrabiblos, which was composed by Claudius Ptolemy, the ancient Greco-Roman astrologer, astronomer, in the in the Tetrabiblos, the winds are expressly associated with the four cardinal points, the east wind being dry, the south hot, the west damp, and the cold, north cold. And that is note Ptolemy, Tetrabiblos 13, the 3rd century alchemical author Zosimos of Panopolis subsequently also wrote about correspondences between the elements and the cardinal points, mentioning specifically east air and south fire from on the letter Omega, page 6. So much for the correspondences between the cardinal points and the elements. How do the names of God fit into the picture? One explanation for the allocation of the divine names to the different directions makes reference to the pattern of solar symbolism that we have already mentioned. Quote, The name of yod the tetragrammaton, is vibrated after the pentagram is drawn in the east. The tradition tells us that yod is a symbol of the highest, most divine name of God. Therefore, it is appropriate that this name is vibrated in the east, the place of the dawning of the light. Adonai, meaning Lord, is the name vibrated after the figure is traced in the south. The name Lord carries with it the connotations of high rank, especially power, rulership, dominion. Here the name is associated with fire and the south, the direction of the sun's greatest strength. The name Ehie is vibrated after the western pentagram is drawn. Ehie, meaning I am, is the divine name of Kether. The west is the place of sunset, the completion of the sun's journey across the sky. The west is a symbol of the completion of the soul's journey and the goal of spiritual growth. 
Therefore, the West is an emblem of Kether. The goal which we seek throughout our incarnation on Earth and which we hope to reach at the end of our life. After the North pentagram is drawn, the word Agla is vibrated. The sentence from which Agla is formed is Atagbur Leolam Adonai, which means, Thou art great forever, my Lord, which is a powerful invocation, clearly calling upon the might of Adonai to aid and guide us through the darkness of things unknown. Agla is vibrated in the north because that is the direction of the greatest symbolic cold, darkness, shadow, illusion, and the unfamiliar. And that is, of course, from Rigardi's The Middle Pillar, page 191-192. I will throw in a little bit of word study here because that seems to be the what's really missing from this excellent paper. Um, earlier we looked at the words... Um, from the Kabbalistic cross, and I, I didn't say much there, but I'll throw in that uh, hesed, the word hesed is an extremely old word. Um, if you ask any biblical language scholar who, or a native Hebrew speaker, they will all say that's one of these words that they don't even have a singular meaning for. It's a meaning that is a word that is intimately connected with a describing the divine qualities. And despite what most translators say, would probably be most uh, uh, corresponding to the the Christian notion of grace, believe it or not. Eheye, of course, is the word that God used when Moses asked who he was in the burning bush, I am, um, whether it was because he was talking to himself high on acacia burnt DMT leaves, who knows? <laughs> it's just a... I'm just messing around. But Eheye, Asher Eheye, I am that I am. And uh, <clears throat> also earlier we saw that in one of the Christian variations they were referencing Givra and it the the word was justice, and that, of course, comes from uh, the word Din. The word Din is also associated with Givra. That sephira could be called Din, which means ju- judgment. And um, as we know from, like, the River Jordan, Jar Din, the River of Judgment. Agla is an acronym or a notarikon of this little aphorism, Atagivur Le'olam Aronai. And Yorhevav, hey, well, enough's been said on that. We don't need to get into that. But Aronai is often overlooked in its depth of word meaning, because Adonai is not a Hebrew word. Well, it is, but it actually is a word that has the same root as the Greek word Adonis. So Adonai and Adonis developed equally out of the same root word, which would be written apostrophe D-N, so Yadon, and that's an Ugaritic word, which meant Lord, and was often applied to terrestrial lords. That's just a little fun fact for you folks for thank you listening to my podcast. I gotta throw some some gems out once in a while, eh? Cheers. Back to it. It has not proven possible to find evidence of this interpretation being advanced by any commentator prior to Israel Regardi in the nineteen thirties. It may be original to him. It certainly has the feeling of being a retrofitted explanation. If it is the original reason for Mather's allocation of the divine names to the cardinal points, must remain a matter of conjecture. Perhaps the allocation was not based on any earlier sources. Perhaps it was purely arbitrary. As we shall shortly see, Mathers was not necessarily punctilious about such things. 
In any event, despite the use of authentic Hebrew god names, the correspondences found in this part of the LBRP are not well founded in the Kabbalistic tradition. The Jewish Kabbalistic sages certainly posited correspondences between the cardinal points, the elements, the names of God, and the Sephirot, but they did not necessarily employ the combinations that are found in the Golden Dawn system. One passage in the Zohar, for example, sets out the following attributions. Quote, Come and see, fire, air, water, and dust. These are primordial ones, roots of above and below. Those above and below are sustained by them. These are four, in four directions of the world, north, south, east, and west. Four directions of the world, inhering in those four. Fire to the north, air to the east, water to the south, dust to the west. See Matt, the Zohar, 83. Beautiful. It also bears noting in this context that there was one strand within the Kabbalah which held that only three basic elements existed. These, this in particular was the doctrine taught by the Sefri Yetzirah. Of course, there are three elements, and Earth's the combination of the fourth, and that's a very Kabbalistic thing, so maybe we'll get into that. I don't know if Wheeler does. This foundational text of the Kabbalistic tradition was a major influence on the Golden Dawn from the cipher manuscript onwards, and Westcott produced a translation of it in 1887, in the period when the order was gestating. This points to an important insight which arises from close study of the LBRP, and which has implications for the way in which we view the Golden Dawn rituals more generally. Mathers, Westcott, and their brethren were not drawing on and preserving an immutable body of timeless esoteric wisdom. They were prepared to diverge from traditional source materials, and they, indeed they had to do so to the extent that these materials were inconsistent within themselves. This is a problem any time you create a, try and create a harmonized system of knowledge or theory of everything. It's one of the problems with Blavatsky and later Dion Fortune. This was true in relation to the Kabbalah and also as regards Christian ceremonial magic. In the Solomonic grimoires, we find combinations of divine names and cardinal points that are both inconsistent and divergent from their usage in the LBRP. Again, I've sort of mentioned whether you're working with planetary, uh, elemental, or zodiacal uh, forces, the structure and the framework, the schema changes. Um, so the idea that the LBRP holds represents some universal schema and not a, a schema for a certain purpose, a certain methodological end is, is a very problematic view. Um, when you're considering the LVRP, we should not see it as it's not the outline for everything. It's the outline to achieve certain results for a certain stage. Mathers, for one, was perfectly aware of this. In his translation of the Key of Solomon, which was published at the time of the birth of the Golden Dawn in 1888, he writes... And within these four circles, thou must write the four names of God, the most holy, one in this order. At the east, El. At the west, Yah. At the south, Agla. And at the north, Adonai. And that is from Mather's uh, edition of the Key of Solomon. These correspondences clearly have nothing to do with those in the LBRP, but Mathers was not troubled by such matters. He adds in a footnote, the manuscripts vary as to the point whereat each name is to be placed, but I think the above will be found to answer. Again, from the Mathers' Key of Solomon. This is a very revealing comment, where Mathers' sources were inconsistent. He was prepared to cut the Gordian knot and impose what he considered to be a practical solution. This points to a wider insight to which we shall return. 
the role of the Victorian occult revivalists in the development of Western esotericism was not merely to restore old traditions, it was also to codify and solidify a body of what had previously been more flexible ideas and materials. That is very well said. Moving on to the pentagrams which the Magus is directed to draw, these are within the framework of the Golden Dawn Magical System, Banishing Earth Pentagrams. This is determined by the directions in which their constituent lines are drawn in the air. We will return shortly to the subject of the pentagram as an esoteric symbol. Note that the concept of a banishing pentagram appears to have predated Mathers. It is already found in the cipher manuscript, page 14, although this page may be written in a different hand from the rest of the manuscript. And I highly recommend everyone who, once you have gone through the grades of the Golden Dawn, to study Poke Runyon, my dear old friends, uh, incredible work on the cipher manuscripts and has not been surpassed what he's done. So Polk Runyon's, Carol Polk Runyon's uh, cipher manuscripts of the Golden Dawn is still the, the, the ultimate analysis of these things. The sister ritual of the LBRP, the supreme ritual of the pentagram, also uses pentagrams drawn in different ways, which are attributed to the other three classical elements and to the fifth element of spirit. In addition, the Supreme Ritual uses other signs at this point in the action, including most notably the astrological glyph of Aquarius in the east, the glyph of Leo in the south, the outline of an eagle in the west, and the glyph of Taurus in the north. These signs are in turn associated with the four classical elements and with the four cherubim, supernatural entities. Hmm, I don't think they're super... No, why, why would you call them supernatural? Come on. Come on! Entities which can be traced back to the Hebrew Bible and the vision of Ezekiel, which exerted such influence on the Kabbalistic tradition. Yeah, well, it, it's in little things like the word supernatural thrown in there that you can really see um, the uh, hermeneutic placement of the author's perspective. Note, Israel regards the Golden Dawn there, and also... Ezekiel 1.10 describes the cherubim as having four faces of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Revelation 4.7 describes four separate creatures with the same faces. The link with Ezekiel and Revelation was acknowledged explicitly by Mathers. See Gilbert, the Sorcerer and His Apprentice. That's a good book. In 1882, not long before the Golden Dawn rituals were composed, the four cherubim had been depicted on the cover of Edward Maitland and Anna Kingsford's work on Christian esotericism, The Perfect Way. Again, the correspondences which are implied here are not necessarily traditional. In particular, they differ from those found in Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, which were in turn repeated at the start of the 19th century by Francis Barrett. Francis Barrett, of course, stole pretty much everything from Agrippa and didn't credit him, so uh, if you know Barrett's the magician, that's where that stuff comes from. But so see Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa de Occulta Philosophia, 2.1.7, and Barrett the Magus, 112. The correspondences in these sources are Lion, East, Fire, Calf, South, Earth, Earth, Eagle, West, Earth, and Man, North, Water. Point, at this point, it's very worth considering uh, Nick Farrell's wonderful demonstration that whether you're doing the banishing or the invoking pentagram ritual, both are providing protection. Um, <clears throat> in his essay, he uh, he says uh, about the banishing design to create protections against astral nasties and remove parts of your personality or bad habits that you do not want. He also says, however, the invoking ritual is just important to this process. The invoking ritual 
allows you to bring things into your life that you want and brings about your connection with spiritual forces. In other words, the banishing ritual of the pentagram is the purification and consecration aspects of the zero equals zero ceremony, while the invoking ritual mirrors those aspects of the zero zero ceremony which draw your higher self to you. In the zero zero ceremony, the candidate starts with their sphere of sensation so black that it is impossible to see the four pillars of their sphere of sensation. During the fourfold purification process, the aura is cleared. However, the candidate is also exposed to spiritual forces represented by the visible and invisible god forms. The danger, then, of just doing the lesser banishing pentagrams is that you would not be drawing these forces to you. Recently, a person who came into contact with a temple I know said that he had been performing the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram every day for 15 years and had felt it had got him, not got him anywhere. It was suggested by the head of a temple that he try the invoking pentagram instead, and suddenly everything changed for him. He started making the spiritual and material progress he craved. Yeah, I can't imagine what kind of order would tell someone to just do the LBRP every day, and that person would do that every day for 15 years without invoking rituals. That's just, that's nuts. But I guess there's still some people out there, uh, you know, who just weren't trained well. So it is clear that the obsession with the banishing pentagram needs to be tempered by the same amount of use of the invoking one. In fact, as spiritual practice, they should be at least 50-50 ratio, with the emphasis being on invoking. Yeah, I think any good Golden Dawn Order trains you that throughout the grades, um, the early grades at that. The question then becomes, how can this be done when we are trained to perform banishing ritual as well as, as a form of protection before all workings, including meditation? Well, the answer lies in that what the LRP actually does. The GD material implies that both the invoking and the banishing provide protection by virtue of the divine names, the angels, and the pentagrams, and the fact that the six-rayed star is placed in your aura. Boom. Yes. Exactly. Thank God for Nick Farrell. I mean, this is stuff that you get taught by good teachers and good orders, but uh, not everyone <laughs> writes about it publicly. So uh, the fact that Nick Farrell does so much to provide these things for people who didn't get the luxury of a awesome temple is amazing. Thank you, Nick. When you are drawing your spiritually empowered pentagrams, he says, and calling up your angelic guardians, you are saying that you are a human and manifest the element you are human and manifest the elements of spirit, fire, air, water, and earth. You are asserting the dominance of spirit over the elemental nature. You are binding this statement into a magic circle, powered by the divine energy of your higher self. This is the mo this is most of the protection you need. Exactly. This divine force spiritualizes the room so that anything that does not operate on that frequency cannot get in. Mm. All you need to do is to tune your sphere to either throwing things away or drawing things towards you. The banishing protects you from internal and external harm when you need it. If you are being attacked by the denizens of hell, you would use the banishing ritual to get rid of them. If you aren't, you don't need it. The likelihood of the forces of darkness being interested in the first magics of a zero equals zero is incredibly low, although it is possible that you are sh your own shadow might cause them a few headaches so you might end up using a banishing more often than you think. I'm of the opinion that doing the LBRP every day during the training process of the outer order is excellent, and I wouldn't have traded that for the world. Does work change through adepthood later on, and do you focus on some other rituals, more powerful rituals? Of course. But, yeah, it's like 
how many times a day is it un- how is it unhealthy to do a sun salutation too many times a day maybe but like you know more sun salutations more invoking or banishing the better right it's it's all good exercise for us our body and soul if you want to attract an angel you would use the invoking one before you're working so if you were doing your general daily meditation you would perform the invoking pentagram ritual because you would want to gain information however if you were meditating on your own shortcomings you would do a banishing because you would want to get rid of something inside you if you were doing a middle pillar exercise, it would be an invoking pentagram because you would want to draw the powers of those divine names to you. So that's quite a debated thing there. Besides drawing other forces to you, the invoking pentagram has a direct effect on the person performing it. Rather than becoming guardians and protectors, the angels and divine names work differently when you perform an invoking pentagram. What you are doing is drawing their energies into your sphere of sensation. Over a period of time, this would have a tremendous positive effect on the person's spiritual life. And of course, in a lot of orders, that's what you do throughout the elemental grades. While there is something to be said for the GD's morning and afternoon alternating invoking and banishing rituals, it, in my opinion, would be better to do one ritual in the morning independent of any other rituals or meditations you might perform. This ritual would be guided by the phase of the moon. So you would do a banishing on the waning, moon and an invoking on the waxing. You could then divide your magical program into things you want to get rid of in the waning moon and things you want in your life in the waxing moon. And that is some true insight from a real amazing adept. That's 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 where Nick Farrell's real adepthood shines through is in those sort of observations um, from his lifelong experience and the tradition uh, he represents. Uh, again, I, if you're following a, an order curriculum, stick with what you're doing Keep that in mind because you have years of adepthood going on for the rest of your life to experiment with these things. Master master your system first and move on after. It also begs another question. Before each working, the temples of the modern Golden Dawn, orders of the Golden Dawn, perform the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram to protect the working. Since we have seen that the working would be protected by either the invoking or the banishing, it might be time to rethink this idea. It might be that the invoking is more appropriate. Our modern-day orders have in many ways moved forward, but perhaps it is time that the invoking ritual pentagram was restored to its former glory and becomes the subject of more explanation. And that you can find that article in defense of the lesser invoking pentagram on Nick Farrell's blog, um, and the comments and discussion below uh, that are, are incredibly wonderful as well. So tons of good stuff from Nick Farrell. I highly recommend all of his books and writings. Regarding the invocation of the archangels, uh, which, again, Farrell has just made some very good points about, Wheeler uh, gives the outline, Stand with your arms outstretched in the form of the cross. Say, Before me, Raphael. Behind me, Gabriel. At my right hand, Michael. At my left hand, Oriel. It's a slightly uh, simplified version of that, and sometimes it's been, of course, elaborated uh, with more words. Of course, and there's an inconsistency, too, to present that with the least amount of words uh, you would use, whereas in the Hebrew to argue to insert the ha, veha, givura, veha. So why would you insert something there but not insert the similar things there? If you know what I mean, it's a subtle point I'm making, but it doesn't, and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Um, but it's pedantic and a little bit fun sometimes. The position described in this part of the LBRP, in which the initiate stands with his arms stretched out horizontally, was referred to in the Golden Dawn as the Calvary Cross. 
It also served as the position representing the god form of Osiris slain, god forms being physical postures associated with Egyptian deities. As we have already intimated, cross-based symbolism was one way in which the Golden Dawn sought to elide Christian and pagan religious traditions, thereby dissolving a dichotomy that was basic to conventional Victorian thinking. Excellently said. The four archangels named in this part of the ritual are all mentioned in Jewish scriptural texts. Gabriel and Michael appear in the canonical book of Daniel, while Raphael appears in the deuterocanonical book of Tobit in the Septuagint, and Uriel, Oriel, appears in the apocryphal books of Enoch and 2nd Esdras. It is interesting to note that the four archangels had been borrowed into pagan magic as early as the Greek magical papyri. And CPGM 7 for that. Three of them, Michael, Gabriel, and Uriel, also appear in the Gnostic texts of the Nag Hammadi collection. See the text known as the Gospel of the Egyptians. It has been claimed that this part of the LBRP has an identifiable source in a traditional Jewish prayer that was easily accessible in the 19th century, even to Gentiles like Mathers. Uh, note this claim is made notably in the Wikipedia page relating to the LBRP, which in this book uh, essay was accessed 17th May 2019, because as we all know, Wikipedia is a bunch of garbage. It has been claimed that this part of the LBRP has an identifiable source in a traditional Jewish prayer, blah, blah, blah. The prayer in question is sometimes referred to as the bedtime Shema, Kriyat Shema Al-Hamit, also rendered as, for example, Kriyas Shema, or Shema. But the likelihood is that this prayer is not where the four archangels in the LBRP come from. Rather, the bedtime Shema and the LBRP both appear to have an earlier common source in Jewish literature. The clue is found in one of Westcott's writings. Quote, According to one Jewish tradition, which has met with much Christian support, there are four principal archangels who stand around the throne of Jehovah. They are Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel. And that comes from uh, Robert Gilbert, The Magical Mason, see Magical Mason by R.A. Gilbert, page 128. The throne is not mentioned in the bedtime Shema, and so we, have, we may surmise that Westcott, and presumably also Mathers, probably knew of the motif of being surrounded by the four archangels from another source, one which did, not, one which did mention God's throne. The motif appears in such a form in medieval rabbinical writings, and it is suggested that this is the ultimate origin of this part of the LBRP, perhaps mediated through some more recent Christian sources or texts and those being C. Perks de Rabbi Eliezer, 4, and Numbers Rabbah, if you know the, the, the Rabbah writings, Bamidar Rabbah. For a later Christian source that would have been available to Mathers, see Gil, an exposition. The invocation of the four archangels stands out somewhat in Jewish practice, as the notion of praying to angels was traditionally disapproved of in monotheistic rabbinical Judaism. The invocation of angels first appears in Jewish prayer in the Seder Rav Amran Geon from late 19th century Babylonia. Quote, when a person goes out at night at no specific hour, he should say, God is on my right and Uziel is on my left and Nemuel is before me and Sha'ashuel is behind me. The presence of God is above my head. Save me, Lord, from evil and affliction and from evil, an evil Satan.
and that is from Levin et al. Gabriel is on the right, angelic protection in Jewish magic. Um, I can tell you from my own study of untranslated Aramaic spells in the second century of Jewish Judeo-Christian traditions, this stuff is really, really common. Um, yeah, it's, it's super common. And a lot of that stuff still isn't translated from the Aramaic. And I highly recommend people uh, dive into that. If you're in university and want to get into new things that need to be translated still, there's just so much stuff that we haven't even begun to look at. It would seem that this text was known to some esotericists in the Golden Dawn tradition, as the notion of the presence of God being above one's head appears in a later variant of the LBRP used by the Stella Matutina. Um, the evidence for this is a text entitled The Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, which is held in the Library of Freemasons Hall, London, call number BE699STE. The relevant wording reads, And above my head, the glory of God. It is not clear, however, whether the text influenced Mather's original composition of the LBRP. The motif of four or five angels who surround a person is found not only in Jewish but also in Christian, Islamic, and Manichaean texts. Yep. It has appeared in both liturgical and magical contexts, including amulets and incantation bowls from antiquity to modern times. And there we go. So the author is very familiar with the uh, massive magical tradition of writings that we most people just don't aren't aware are so uh, numerous. The identity and directions of the angels are not consistent in this body of material. See Levin et al. Gabriel's on my right. Angelic protection in Jewish magic is a good essay for a table of different angels and directions. So again, the Golden Dawn has no fixed traditional set of correspondences to preserve. When we try to track the motif back in time, the trail leads us to the profoundly pagan world of Babylonia in the second millennium BC. Here is a text from that world in which an exorcist is invoking the protection of the gods. Quote, I am the exorcist, the Sangamahu priest of Ea. I am the purification priest of Eridu. The incantation which he casts is dedicated to bringing calm. When I go to the patient, when I push open the door of the house, when I call out at his gate, when I cross the threshold, when I enter the house, when Shamash in front of me and Shin behind me, with Nurgle on my right and with Ninurtu on my left, when I approach the patient and lay my hand on the patient's head, may the good spirit and good genius be at my present at my side. For the full text, see Geller, Healing Magic and Evil Demons. This part of the LBRP, then, is a very old piece of Near Eastern paganism mediated through the Abrahamic faiths and articulated in Jewish language. Again, Mathers had stumbled on something that had more baggage than he could have realized, and I would be willing to bet personally that had we not uh, burned down Alexandria and stolen all the magical texts of the Vatican, we would find hundreds of more references to magic like this. That would be my contention. We noted above that there are no fixed traditional attributions of the archangels to the cardinal points. How, then, did the archangels acquire the positions that they occupy in the LBRP? That's the question. Is it an important question? Who knows? The Golden Dawn correspondences between the archangels and the elements go back as f at least as far as Agrippa, as plagiarized by Francis Barrett. <laughs> yep. But the correspondences between the archangels and the cardinal points 
depart from those in Agrippa. It is evident that they were generated by mapping Agrippa's archangel element correspondences onto the separate set of element direction correspondences derived from Claudius Ptolemy. This is a prime example of the kind of conceptual surgery that was performed by the Golden Dawn in the course of creating its magical system. Note, it may be worth noting that this had already been done before Mathers came on the scene. The LBRP system of correspondences between archangels, elements, and cardinal points is apparent in the cipher manuscript. Again, so this is all representing a somewhat older tradition. How old, we don't know. The two stars. Before me flames the pentagram. Behind me shines the six-rayed star. Here the Magus declares that he is positioned between the pentagram and the hexagram, two important esoteric symbols. The pentagram, which we have already met in an earlier part of the LBRP, has become inextricably associated with the occult tradition to the extent that it serves quite widely in popular culture as a symbol of magic and witchcraft. The historical roots of the symbol are profoundly deep. Pentagrams are archaeologically attested in Europe and Asia as far back as the Stone Age. Yup and they found their way into religious and philosophical currents ranging from Pythagoreanism to Paracelsianism. Most relevantly for our purposes, both the pentagram and the hexagram appear specifically in the Solomonic tradition, for example, in the magical tool known as the Seal of Solomon, and they were subsequently borrowed into Freemasonry. The pentagram and hexagram symbolism in the LBRP is likely to derive from these sources as mediated primarily through the writings of Alephis Levy. In general, in the Golden Dawn system, the pentagram is the sign of the microcosm, while the hexagram is the sign of the macrocosm. So yes, we stand as the bridge to the microcosm and the macrocosm. La-di-da. In esoteric thought, of course, the microcosm is the lower level of reality which corresponds to the higher universal level. As above, so below. Yeah, I'm taking issue with some of that stuff in nuanced form in my new book. Hence, in this part of the LBRP, the Magus is locating himself between the two levels of reality. The microcosm can be equated to the human body, which explains a reference in the Golden Dawn Papers to the power of the pentagram constituting the glorified body of Osiris, another reminder of how Egyptian symbolism permeated the order. Again, see Golden Dawn by Rigardi, the notion of the glorified body is also Christian in Corinthians 1 chapter 15, verses 35 to 55. The association of the pentagram with the microcosm goes back to at least Paracelsus and Agrippa, but it probably came to the Golden Dawn through Lévy. Lévy. It is worth quoting the French Magus's Gothic prose on this subject at some length. Quote, We proceed to the explanation and consecration of the sacred and mysterious pentagram. At this point, let the ignorant and superstitious close the book for they will either see nothing but darkness, or they will be scandalized. The pentagram, which in Gnostic schools is called the blazing star, is the sign of intellectual omnipotence and autocracy. It is the star of the Magi. It is the sign of the word made flesh, and according to the direction of its points, this absolute magical symbol represents order or confusion, the divine lamb of Ormuz and St. John, or the accursed goat of Mendes. It is, the initiation, it is initiation or profanation. It is Lucifer or Vesper, the star of the morning or the evening. It is Mary or Lilith, victory or death, day or night. The pentagram is the figure of the human body, having the four limbs and a single point representing the head. The sign of the pentagram is also called 
is called also the sign of the microcosm. The complete comprehension of the pentagram is the key of the two worlds. It is the absolute philosophy and natural science. That's from Levy, Transcendental Magic, 224-25. Given what we know of Levy's influence, this is very, a very plausible source for the use of the pentagram in the Golden Dawn system. But there was also another relatively recent potential source, the German romantic poet and polymath Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And that's what I've always said. Yeah, my, my, my more germ, German background than French linguistically, so of course I always go to Goethe, and everyone else seems to always go to these French people. But I think, um, you know, because more Westerners know French, and especially Anglophiles are more likely to know French than German due to, you know, politics, world history. <laughs> The vital clue to Goethe's influence is found in the following piece of advice that was given to members of the Golden Dawn. And let's not forget that Goethe was, you know, trained in mystery schools, like literally. In all cases of tracing a pentagram, the angle should be carefully closed at the finishing point. Why would this, that's from Regardi, why would this seemingly trivial matter be emphasized? The answer, it seems, lies in part one, scene three of Goethe's Faust, and here is some of Wheeler's excellent scholarship at work. Mephistopheles explains to Faust that a pentagram is preventing him from leaving the, letter, the latter's study. How, then, did he manage to enter in the first place? It appears that there is a fatal gap in the shape of the pentagram. Mephistopheles, I must confess that forth I may not wander, my steps by one slight obstacle controlled, the wizard's foot that on your threshold made is. Faust, the pentagram prohibits thee? Why, tell me now, thou son of Hades, if that prevents, how camest thou into me? Could such a spirit be so cheated? Mephistopheles, inspect the thing, the drawing's not completed, the outer angle you may see, is open left, the lines don't fit it. And the poetry, of course, is always more fluid in German, um, but that's from, from Faust the Taylor translation, 50. The peculiar detail of the incomplete pentagram appears to indicate that Faust influenced the usage of the pentagram in the Golden Dawn. It is clear that the scene in question was known to contemporary occultists. Interestingly, this is the only element of the LBRP which appears to have been consciously borrowed from a work of fiction. Note, it was mentioned shortly before the foundation of the Golden Dawn in Collins, the theosophical meaning of Goethe's Faust. One, that's Faust Part One. Part Two is a very different story, um, and to call Faust a work of fiction as opposed to a work of spiritual uh, training is highly contentious. As a final point regarding the hexagram, the words "Behind me shines the six-ray star" are often altered in modern versions of the LBRP to "In the column shines the six-rayed star." Uh, which is, in my opinion, a stupid aberration. The column in this formulation appears to be the middle pillar of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, with which, as we mentioned earlier, the Magus is associating himself. The in-the-column wording first seems to appear in Crowley's Star Ruby variant of the LBRP. Yeah, Crowley liked to add things to rituals so that people thought that he wrote them. That's a fact. He, he mentions that in his autohagiography. The rite closes with a repetition of the Kabbalistic cross. Thanks for listening. This is a to-be-continued.
While you're waiting, I invite you to go leave a review on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify or find me on anchor.fm forward slash magic. Send questions, follow, like, you know, do whatever you can. Thank you. Peace profound. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk